When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Curioso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 184, The Return of the King. As the Protectorate moved along in the late 1650s, Oliver Cromwell made a rather unique change to the history of the British Isles. In this period, Protestant Netherlands were very dependent upon the Jewish community involved in the economics of the country. The Dutch had become England's lead commercial rival, and it was seen that it that the Jewish community there was important to why the Dutch were being so successful. So in order to try and surpass the Dutch, along with Cromwell's general tolerance to the right of private worship, even amongst those outside of Puritanism, and of course even Christianity, had led to his encouraging Jews to return to England. In 1657, over 350 years after their banishment by King Edward I, in the hope that they would help speed up the recovery of the country after the instability due to the civil wars. Of course, this was not the only reason he brought the Jews back to England in the millennial ideals of the Protestants and Presbyterians specifically, that in their thought process, converting Jews to Christianity would help bring about the second coming of Christ and the end to the need of human governments. This ideal, of course, was fraught with a great deal of trauma for many who had become persecuted in the name of bringing about the end of the world. But the ideal of a coming new age was never far away from Puritan thought process and philosophy. Also, in 1657, the prickly thorn that was what to do about the crown and the kingdom once again was put before Cromwell. He was once again offered the crown by Parliament as part of a revised constitutional settlement in order to deal with what was viewed as the problematic nature of the Commonwealth. While no one can firmly say what his thoughts were, it was claimed that Cromwell agonized for six weeks over that offer. If I was to be honest, and I think some historians agree, there appeared to be a bit of checking the weather to make sure that the wind was blowing in the right direction, not unlike how Caesar thought about the title Rex when offered it by his friend, only to turn it down in a great public showing, knowing that the Roman government would rebel immediately had he put on any ideal of bringing back the kingship. Cromwell, for his part, was attracted by the prospect of the stability it held out in a world where the monarchy was seen as the natural form of government. It would have made sense to return to that style one more time. Eventually, in a speech on the 13th of April, 1657, he made it clear that God's providence had spoken against the office of the king. I would not seek to set up that which providence had destroyed— 
and laid in the dust, and I would not build Jericho again, he said. Instead, Cromwell was ceremoniously reinstalled as Lord Protector on the 26th of June, 1657, in Westminster Hall, sitting upon King Edward's chair, which was moved specially from Westminster Abbey for the occasion, something that has been done at every crowning and coronation, with its obvious imagery of monarchy still firmly established in the mind of English subjects, he was, in all senses of the word, coronated. The events, of course, echoed coronations, using many of its symbols and regalia, such as the purple ermine-lined robe, the sword of justice, and the scepter, but, most notably, the office of Lord Protector was still not hereditary, and though Cromwell was now able to nominate his own successor, it was perceived that he could at least consider not nominating a family member. Cromwell's new rights and powers were laid out in the humble petition and advice, a legislative instrument which replaced the instrument of government. Despite failing to restore the crown, this new constitution did set up many of the vestiges of the ancient constitution, including a house of life peers in place of the house of lords. In reality, of course, it was returned to the familiar form of government in everything but name and done, of course, to build up this stability. There had been over the years this perception that the arrival of the parliament to position of authority and the execution of Charles I had led to a level of chaos that was unwanted and unneeded, and everyone assumed that the best resolution would be stability, and thus the idea that bringing about a monarch light, in quotes, by me, uh, would allow for Cromwell to avoid this problem and return to this concept of stability. Of course, it's a level that doesn't work when your government's being run by the military and is pretty much in every name a dictatorship. In his final years, he may not have been a king by name, but that was about all it was. His refusal to have a hereditary position was slightly adjusted so that he could name his heir, which of course still puts it in the realms of a monarch. In 1658, Cromwell took seriously ill with an infection that worked its way through him very quickly, and by September 3rd he was dead. Much of his protectorate now fell to his chosen heir, who, surprise, surprise, just happened to be his son Richard Cromwell. Unfortunately for the Parliament and the Puritans, Richard was not his father, and his inability to lead became pretty obvious over the near decade that his father had ruled, Richard had built no real allies in either the Parliament or in the military that Cromwell had bolstered, made his reputation in, and had won the Civil War at the head of. So the fact that he was fostered to take the position of power by his father made no difference, and he was basically abandoned by both sides relatively quickly without spending a lot of time on this government change. Let's point out that Richard only lasted a few months in charge before resigning in favor of a couple of other gentlemen, Charles Fleetwood and John Lambert, 
who themselves only lasted until the autumn of 1659, after the governor of Scotland, George Monk, took an army and overthrew the English lords, ending the protectorate once and for all and returning control of England, Scotland, and Wales to the Parliament. There is some debate at what Monk's goals were. Did he seek to return the parliamentary rule for England, or did he seek to re-establish the monarchy, as did happen in the end? His original reason for opposing Lambert and Fleetwood was his annoyance over their inability of anyone in this group to lead and their inability to live up to what Oliver Cromwell had represented. The problem was, in true fact, is that the population itself was not really in the mood for more experiments with Puritan leadership and the Parliament. This meant that the public was done with this whole thing, and that likely was part of the reason why Cromwell was looking at alternatives in creating a government that was monarchy light in a way it was to sort of stave off this concern that the mass majority of the population had become tired of him and in the chaos that had been sown after the end of the civil war in places like wales the protectorate had never really made strong gains and calls were frequently heard to return to the stuarts and specifically prince charles to the monarchy of england Monk finally concluded that the only real solution that was going to work was the Stuart Restoration under the guarantees of the liberties of the Parliament. With that in mind, Monk immediately entered into negotiations with Charles, who was in the Netherlands at the time, which resulted into the Declaration of Breda, which was then issued. Charles was proclaimed as the monarch of England once more, and he himself declared his readiness to grant a free pardon to everyone not specifically exempted by Parliament, in other words, those not responsible for the death of Charles I. The next key point was that Charles would protect those nobles who benefited from the protectorate as their lands would remain in their own hands. They would, there would not be penalties for religious opinion unless they were subversive to the public order, which we'll get to in a bit. The reality of it is, is that in past cases, whenever a new king came on the scene, one of the first things that happened was he would hand out lands of his opposition to his loyalists and thus create enemies in those camps. So one of the ways to alleviate that problem was, of course, to not do that, which is exactly what Charles did. He didn't immediately take away their lands, thus didn't create enemies immediately. Of course, after the public declaration, the new parliament would meet, and when they met, many of those who had been loyal royalists returned to the parliament to represent their side of the argument once again. The loss of Cromwell's leadership and his failed son, derisively called Tumbledown Dick, of course his name being Richard, due to his quick fall, left the Presbyterian cause in tatters, and many willing to accept Charles back as king. With the arrival of the new parliament in April of 1660, things then were changed too quickly for the former Cromwell supporters to adjust and to react to, and on May 8th it was proclaimed that King Charles II would be the lawful monarch. Since the execution of Charles I on January 30th, 1649, was considered to be the end of that monarchy, 
in effect, Charles would have ruled from that point, erasing the entire decade of rule by Cromwell. Charles returned from exile, arriving back in England on May 25th after a two-day journey, leaving The Hague at that point. And on May 29th, he entered London on his 30th birthday, and to celebrate his return, the Parliament declared a public holiday, which was known at the time as the Oak Apple Day, now called the Royal Oak Day. The reason for the name of this day is because of the so-called quick wit of King Charles II, who escaped soldiers seeking refuge in an oak tree. A few months after the return of the new government, they then announced the Indemnity and Oblivion Act, which became law on the 29th of August, 1660. This law pardoned all past treasons against the crown, but ex specifically excluded those involved in the trial and execution of Charles I. To show just how important this was, about 89 nobles, knights, and lesser landholders from North Wales spoke on behalf of catching all of those involved in the execution of Charles I. They were, quite literally, out for blood. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. 
So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thirty-one of the fifty-nine commissioners, or judges, who had signed the death warrant in 1649 were living. This regiciders were then hunted down, and only a few escaped, but many that were found were put on trial. Three of those who escaped actually escaped specifically to the American colonies and to New Haven, Connecticut in particular which became the new homes of Edward Whaley, William Goff, and John Dixwell. After American independence, each of these men had streets named after them in honor of them as forefathers of the American Revolution. Again, an interesting ideal that they sought in these people who had stood up to the English monarchy. The name Oliver was not used in Wales due to its association with that Lord Protector, Cromwell was now a name associated with the worst aspects of tyranny, and many now considered an association to him as being a representative of evil. As historian Garrett Jenkins said, To most Welshmen, the execution of Charles I had been a monstrous deed, and the memory of his unhappy fate were not permitted to die. Every year on January 30th, his execution anniversary, it was considered to be a royal holy day setting him almost to the point of a saint in the older Catholic ideal. He was not a king who had mismanaged himself into a historic defeat or a blunderer who managed to sink himself to a war with his own parliament, but now he was a martyr undone by religious slaughter and intolerance. It was, of course, completely wrong and total propaganda, but this was the way it was viewed by many at the time, and some would continue to hold grudges against families that had been on side with Cromwell long after the person involved was dead. Multi-generational feuds developed out of the animosity over the Civil War and its aftermath. Not a few would be punished for the sins of their forefathers in Wales specifically. Despite the restoration, many historians feel that the Parliament had won the upper hand. In Wales, this was represented by the accession of 20 families who would then control the power base of the parliamentary seats in Wales for over a 100 years. These were hardly free and fair elections in the way we would view them. They were, of course, little better than appointees. Elections themselves were decided through private deals between landholders and from 1660 to 1714, effectively the entire Regency period, less than 10% of the so-called eligible voters of Wales made all of the casting votes. This meant that they had total and complete control over the political apparatus that chose the new MP, which of course then meant that they controlled the Welsh side of the arguments in the Parliament, which were decidedly royalist in nature. This would, as I said, remain that way at least into the Georgian monarchy 
And some would argue that it went well beyond that, as I said, over a hundred years. So basically up until there was proper uh, representation by election, the two main parties in Britain at the time were the Whigs and the Tories, and both of these parties had set aside their political allegiances depending on their attitudes towards the Stuart monarchy. The Whigs supported both the dethroning of James II in 1688 and the accession of the Hanoverian dynasty, or the Georges, in 1714. The Tories, on the other hand, only accepted those changes reluctantly and were supporters of the Stuarts long after probably it was wise to be. Some of the nobility in Wales saw the restoration as a return from slavery. Their king was back, in quotes. And those English religious zealots were finally turfed. The parliament that sat through most of Charles's reign was now firmly royalist in nature, and Wales, in many parts, appeared to be happy about it. By the spring of 1661, many of the old royalist family in Wales were back in power positions within the country, which featured a few of the former Cromwellian appointees, who kept their position likely because they were effective, first of all, and also the idea that they needed to keep some stability and some sense of continuation within the government. One of the side effects of this return, of course, was the return of Anglican clerics, pushing out the Puritans who had been running the Church of England for the past decade. For many, the upper and middle class specifically, the return of the king meant a return to stability and the end to what they saw as tyranny by men who were driven by religion and politics to harass and destroy the lives of others. This is where a great deal of the memory of Puritan rule overtook the reality. Much of the ideas of Puritan austerity and misery were driven by some after-the-fact propaganda, much like what happened during the Tudor period when people like Richard III were slandered greatly because of the Tudors winning the war. They determined what the ideal and the thought process was. So much like that, the ideals of what Cromwell stood for and the representation of the power base of the government at the time was to a degree overblown and made so much worse because of that. The very idea of republicanism was now looked upon with the same horror to, as we today might view fascism. There was a sense that it created chaos and disorder and bent the rule of the world against God, something that ignores how often chaos and war had been sown in the period of the War of the Roses or any number of various disputes by various kings and pretenders for time immemorial in England and Wales. But recency bias and some handy propaganda handed out by no less than the church itself fought against the ideals of republicanism and the ideals that we would view as normal democracy. This went for religious groups who were not tied to the Puritans or Presbyterians now, but were considered to be rabble-rousers of the worst degree. Remember we mentioned earlier about the idea that one of the groups that were not to be protected were those that were considered to be seditious. Well, it just so happens that Quakers and Baptists began to be jailed for having what was considered to be seditious ideas. 
The concepts that create any sort of democratic values were now seen as dangerous innovations that created chaos and disorder amongst various classes, thus should not be allowed, which would drive more of these people to migrate to the colonies in America and the perception that these values differed so starkly from many of their fellow Welsh and English people meant that they had to leave. Of course, this is a sweeping statement. It must be said that it would be the height of jingoism or patriotic silliness to say that America was somehow different from the mother country because of the movement of these groups while ignoring the thousands who had migrated simply for opportunity for land, to seek out their fortunes, or many other mundane reasons that have nothing to do with politics or religion of the day. But a lot of the seeded ideas and philosophies did arrive with these groups, and while they weren't the dominant ones in society, they still had a strong voice in what was to come. With that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. If you would like to help out the podcast in some way, you can always do that through patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Certainly, any financial assistance is always appreciated as it goes towards helping to purchase the books I use to research for this podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. Have yourselves a great day. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.